0: welcome to the voice of the child. More than a quadrillion, quadrillion viruses exist on Earth today, and while they can be rather picky about who and what they infect, the novel coronavirus has caught the world's attention for being highly infectious and deadly. As the race to find out more about the virus and how it has affected adults around the world begins, children have been largely ignored in the research, despite alarming findings which confirm they are also susceptible to infection, and in some cases, at risk of developing life-threatening symptoms. Dr Thomas Waterfield, a paediatric emergency medicine physician and clinical lecturer at the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences at Queen's University in Belfast, is leading a team which together with Public Health England has just begun new and pioneering research to try to find out how COVID-19 is affecting children across the UK. The study aims to measure antibodies in children to see if the researchers can find any clues about ways in which the virus affects young people and how their bodies are responding to the infection. Dr Waterfield, this is really exciting new research which will hopefully help us understand COVID-19 and children much better. How did you get involved in this project and what's the research going to explore?
1: With the um, pandemic, uh, all of the kind of academic doctors, so so we split our time between research, teaching and clinical practice, um, were moved from research to full-time clinical practice which was fine and then essentially within a week as that um we got a phone calls from some colleagues across the country saying you know there was interest in looking at um COVID and looking at transmission and, and, and would I be willing to um help with the study so uh, very quickly within a week or so I went back to half clinical so uh, working in a in a children's hospital in Belfast and half research um and it was strange in terms of normally with research we We spent ages planning it. Um, It can feel really frustrating going through all the different iterations of the plan and and getting everyone together and building a team. Um, Whereas this, it was it was just crazy in terms of um, from kind of concept to ethical approval was around was ten days, um, which is just unbelievable. So the all the ethics committees were just set up for COVID studies only. So people were we had an ethics review at I think it was eight o'clock at night. You know, on a, and it was it was just sorted um, and then we reached out to contacts from other projects in different parts of the country um, and again the, the response was incredible just yes we'll do it we can do it let's get it done and then even in terms of, of funding you know what would take months it took a few weeks so it's been it's been interesting in terms of what you can actually do when everyone's united behind one goal you know to get to get these projects done and um, the other side of it is, it's um, it's very tiring because you, mm. you 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 have to be reacting to things in real time and, and changing and, and amending and improving, or, or you know rather than getting it all planned and ready. But it's, so it's been good fun. It's been tiring. It's been hard work. It's, I don't think I'll ever get to experience this kind of research again ever.
0: In that very short period of time, you've also managed to gather over a 1,000 children to take part in this study, um, which I read on your press release um, on the university website. How did you choose those children?
1: So this, this was tough. So we wanted to look, part of it was looking at transmission. So we needed to have a reasonable number of um, people that were exposed to the, to the SARS coronavirus um, 2. And although it feels like we've had an awful lot of it, it's still not widespread within the population. The, the prevalence is still quite low. So we, we went for healthcare workers because we thought they'd be more exposed. We would be able to collect the data more quickly. And then the other side of that was to be quite quite pragmatic. So again, we're asking these children to have a blood test. It's quite unpleasant. It's not something they would choose to do normally. Um, and we would usually spend time and work with them with things like play specialists, specialists. Um, you know, we would get them ready for the clinic, and we would also spend time with the parents going through the consent. But with social distancing, we couldn't bring them up repeatedly for face-to-face chats about the the study. We couldn't use the play specialists; they were they were essentially redeployed to other duties. So by doing by using healthcare workers, they understood what was involved in the blood test, the procedures. They could communicate that with the children. Um, it just made some of the kind of day-to-day, boring, you might think, mundane ways that you design a study easier. So we worked, that's why we worked with healthcare workers. And it's um even with that, we were concerned, you know, would people sign up, would they want to take part? And actually, we were overwhelmed with the interest. So um, even in Belfast, we had to run an additional day because we had um, people that were disappointed that they couldn't take part. The same thing happened in Glasgow. The same thing happened in London. The same thing is currently happening in you know, Cardiff and Manchester, where there are more willing volunteers and there are actually spaces in the trial.
0: You're calling the children who are taking part in the trial COVID warriors. Have you had any feedback from the kids that you've been interacting with for the study?
1: So um, we have. We've got a colleague of mine's running our uh, participant kind of public involvement, and um, overwhelmingly they they we're getting a message that they want to contribute. That was a big part of it. So the themes where they wanted to contribute, they wanted to do something, they wanted, they wanted to do something to help. So that, which is quite nice, especially uh, the older children, you know, the, the kind of young people, if you like, were really, it's kind of quite an altruistic thing. They wanted to come and do something positive. I think the other thing here is that they're also, you know, their parents are working in healthcare and things are settling a bit now, but there was a lot of fear really early on, you know, Even my, um, you know, children, kind of six, my six-year-old, you know, would ask me, you know, are you going to work? You know, are you going to be okay? And um, you come in and, you you know, you can't touch me. I'm going to I'm going to change all my clothes and wash everything and shower and and then I'll come and see you. And um, so I think them being children of healthcare workers as well, they'll probably feel that a little bit more at home the risks and, and, and were maybe a little bit more aware of what was going on mm. and wanted to do their bit. In terms of the actual blood tests, they've gone very, we've only used very uh, experienced um, paediatric staff. So uh, we were very clear on that early on there had to be people who were very experienced in, in phlebotomy in children. And what we found is actually outside the hospital setting where they're sick, you know, these are well children coming in, we've made it as fun as we can for them. Um, it's gone really well and we've, we've only had, uh, you know, Belfast kind of one or two children where we we couldn't you know for whatever reason get a blood sample and most of them it went it went very well and and I wouldn't say they enjoyed enjoyment joy is not the right (laughs) word but I think they were pleased they took part and and we've got good numbers coming back this weekend for the the second clinic.
0: You're also working within a paediatric unit and I'm assuming from what you've just told me that you are coming into contact with children who have been infected with the virus what's that been like for you and for the children in the wards?
1: It's been very strange in terms of, so Northern Ireland, we, we haven't been as badly affected. We, there was a lot of fear early on, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we, we The hospital's been completely redesigned, so outpatients were essentially cancelled, routine operations cancelled. Um, our A&E department then took up a, a much bigger footprint, so we spread ourselves across outpatients and A&E, and we split them into areas where you, you have the children that are thought to be at higher risk of infection and then the children that are thought to be at lower risk. Um, to try and manage that, and we would split our staff across the two sites. Um, as time's gone on, and we've seen, thankfully, children are—you know—children are not badly affected. Um, certainly compared to adults, um, I think people have started to relax. Um, and actually, then what's started to happen is the, the other side of it is that our anxiety is growing in terms of we want um, outpatients to reopen, we want schools to reopen. We're getting worried about our children that are not getting to go get to outpatient clinics or coming in late with with health problems because they've been too scared to attend. So it, it's been a strange journey from lots of fear, all this redesigning of the service, starting to accept that children are thankfully quite well protected, and then moving on to actually the biggest risk to children is we can't get them back to school, we can't get their routine services going on. You know, there's lots of safeguarding worries. We're not seeing children who may be suffering abuse, there's less opportunities to catch that and in, and, and, and intervene. We're, we're also seeing lots of problems with anxiety, mental health, um, you know, f- filtering through now with increased attendances with those kind of problems. So actually, the biggest risk for the children is that we're not able to provide their normal services.
0: The current data that we have, as you said, suggests that children are at less risk of being infected with the virus. Do you think that as a result of their physiology, or is that perhaps something to do with the context in which they've been provided perhaps with an additional layer of shielding within the context of their community and their way of life and their routine?
1: In terms of actually the COVID-19 and the illness itself, they definitely have a milder illness. There's no um, there's no doubt about that. The older, you, the older you become, the closer that becomes to an adult, uh, but in young children, essentially have almost no illness. And the, the reasons for that aren't really still known. People have ideas, but we don't really know why there's. So even if they get the infection, they're not seeing symptoms. And certainly, even the early data from our seroprevalence work is that is that about a third of children have no symptoms, despite having developed antibodies, which means they must have been exposed at some point. In terms of are they being exposed? I think children over overall have been shielded. I think that's the right way to describe them. Not maybe intentionally. Some some of it's intentionally, but. children, you know, how many shops say, please don't bring your children into the shop? Um, You know, so we're not taking children into shops. We're not, um, they're not going inside anyone else's houses. Just recently, they're starting to be able to go outside a little bit more and enjoy some fresh air. But most children have been at home, essentially not interacting. So then the only people that are going out and mixing are their their parents. So parents are be bringing it home and passing infection on. But children have had almost no kind of role in the spread of the infection so far.
0: Your study is going to be looking at children within the ages of two to 16. Is there a reason why uh, very small children and babies and uh, teenagers between the ages of 17 to 18 have been excluded from the study?
1: So it's more to do with um, the amount of blood that you need to take. Once you're over two, the phlebotomy becomes easier. It's the actual procedure, it's less traumatic. So it's a bit of a trade off. we are saying that we can't use, or it's very difficult for us to use play specialists. Limited opportunities to conduct the face-to-face, you know, discussions. Everything's over the telephone. We just come in, have a blood test, leave. So, from a pragmatic point of view, start taking significant amount, well, you know, blood from very very young children, and then also without having some of those other measures in place. So, it was kind of a pragmatic thing to set it at two. The the sixteen is it's just slightly there's a debate about where pediatrics starts and starts and finishes, um, and then some of the things around consent. So most of that kind of falls on the governance, the legal sides of things rather than from a medical point of view. That makes sense. A lot of trials that look at seroprevalence will, will often include some children, but they rarely go and include the younger age group. So yeah, 2 to 16 is kind of pragmatic. I mean, in an ideal world, you just have every single, you just include everyone, children, adults, and mm. um, you know, the entire family unit,
0: Your study is going to look at um, antibodies within children and whether or not those give you any indications as to how the virus has impacted children. And this is probably a very silly question, but can children actually fight off a virus with pre-existing antibodies from a previous unrelated infection to COVID-19? Or do you have to have had exposure to a very specific infection to then develop antibodies for that infection itself?
1: So there are other coronaviruses, we we have our own, actually our own kind of Northern Irish coronavirus that circulates here and most of them have a harmless cause mild illness and we wouldn't expect there to be, first of all they don't generate much immunity in their own, if you if you have one of the other coronaviruses you may develop antibodies for a few months and almost very little immune response that they generate, so I don't think they would offer you any kind of protection against the SARS coronavirus 2. And what we don't know is actually if if you're exposed to the virus, which I think is kind of your question, um, if you're asymptomatic, do you develop antibodies or do you need to be sick to develop antibodies? Well, certainly from the early data we're getting, it looks like you can be completely asymptomatic and develop antibodies. So um, said about a third of the children have an antibody response with no history of any illness. So you don't necessarily need to be sick to develop antibodies. The kind of million pound question is, you know, do those antibodies confirm immunity? And we don't know. So um, the antibody tests at the the minute are directed mostly at the nuclear capsid, which is useful for telling you if you've been exposed, but um, not necessarily indicative of immunity. There are some tests being developed and finalized looking at the spike proteins, which certainly kind of previous SARS viruses, the spike protein antibodies were the ones that were associated with immunity. So it would be reasonable It would be a reasonable assumption, guess, that if you have antibodies, that you would expect some form of immunity. But we don't know how long it lasts and how good it is, you know, and how that would affect your your disease progression. So, again, if you're an adult, you know, you've been very sick, you've got some antibodies. Does that mean that you won't get it in future? um, Or if you've got it, it'll be milder. And also, how long do those antibodies last? Are Are they like three or four months, like other coronaviruses, or do they last a bit longer?
0: i was just wondering whether you could actually fight off a, a new virus with existing antibodies or pre-existing antibodies inside your system which you develop from a completely a unrelated yeah
1: yeah no i don't think i don't think there's any evidence that that's that's possible with the with this with coronavirus i know uh, things like uh, bcg vaccination and certain things that might modulate your immune response and make you able to maybe have a less severe illness if being looked into but I'm not aware of anything that would suggest if you've had a previous form of coronavirus or other viral illness that you have antibodies to that they're protective in some way.
0: Will all of the children taking part in the study have been asymptomatic if they have been exposed to the virus and potentially infected with it?
1: So, so two-thirds of the children so far have, have had symptoms. So we'll, we ask about illness episodes and history and then kind of marry that up with some of the results. Um, and children's symptoms, and so none of the from the early day, none of them were admitted to hospital. None of them required, you know, anything beyond kind of self care at home. Um, and the main symptoms were temperature, lethargy, um, some mild um, gastrointestinal upset. So not seeing people coming in with kind of children rarely present with a cough, even if they're symptomatic, from what we've seen from early data that's from, from coming through in, our, in this study, which is interesting.
0: So going to the science for a moment, how are you going to be using the scientific tools available to you to isolate the antibodies and extract the information that you need from them?
1: So the antibody tests that we're using are actually commercially available. So um, we're working in partnership with Public Health England um, and also Public Health in Northern Ireland. But uh, Public Health England, you can go on, they're actually publishing all of the data in terms of um, the the test accuracy. So we're using, at the moment, the Roche and Abbott tests, which you've probably seen in the media have both been confirmed. They're both um, immunoglobulin G. So that's um, an antibody response that represents kind of more of a long-term memory. So your body usually makes kind of temporary response, which we often talk about the M immunoglobulins initially, and then the G ones are are associated with longer-term immune memory. The downside for those is it takes about two weeks for you to develop them. So if you're um, infected within two weeks of being tested, you may actually go on and have antibodies, but they're not detectable yet. So if you have um, either the Abbott or the Roche um, test positive for the immunoglobulin G, they're very specific, which means you, you will have had that infection almost certainly, and the antibodies are genuine. The downside of these tests is a small number, so kind of, one or two in ten potentially could test negative and um and actually are just in the process of developing antibodies that aren't detectable yet um, and we do see that with some of the results coming through that are borderline and you suspect how much chance to look for it properly because it's just coming through in real time but those children may have had symptoms within the last two weeks which is why that their, their, their response hasn't maybe isn't isn't meeting the threshold for detection but but there's evidence that it's probably would be in another week or two, which is why we're following them up at uh, repeated. we are seeing them more than once. So a, a lot of other studies only bring the children in for one point prevalence. Whereas what, by doing this, we can see as antibodies develop, but also how long they persist for.
0: And you've chosen two points to, to revisit the, uh, well, one point of re- revisitation and one initial um, consultation with kids. Why not three or four?
1: So we've done at the baseline to, we're doing, we've got the first appointment, two months and six months we may do more so it's partly about funding so um, at the moment as I kind of alluded to with the restructuring of services and goodwill there's a lot of um, interest and activity around this but as normal research resumes as services resume we would have to look for um, significant ongoing funding so I there may well be follow-on studies from this so I would like to for example uh, all the children that test positive and then follow them up for another two years would be, would be my ideal with repeated um, appointments to see how long the antibody response persists for, and also do they develop any? um they develop COVID nineteen in the interval period? So, all of these things unfortunately sometimes come down to governance, you know, um, ethics and um, and money
0: beyond detection of antibodies um, within children what else are you hoping to discover from the research
1: so certainly some more information around transmission um, it's if you can understand the transmission how likely someone is to spread it within close contacts it can help with predicting things like schools so um, for example with the data that we've collected and you've already alluded to the kind of a lockdown that the children have been in we can be pretty sure that if a parent's symptoms was first, they have a swab test positive, which we're recording all of this data, and then their children develop antibodies, that that infection has passed from the parent to the child, not the other way, which is an opportunity just because we conducted this during the kind of lockdown. And then we can start to report things like the attack rate. So we can, and we've got a paper that we're just preparing, which is, which is going to report that. We've submitted that for publication to, um, the Lancet infectious diseases, which is reporting that attack rate. So, um, by knowing that data and that attack rate data, we can we can help with um planning measures,
0: things like opening schools. Are you also going to be looking at things like immunity?
1: In terms of whether they develop immunity and whether that persists.
0: Or... Yes, yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, so well that's, so that's what we're doing. So we're obviously doing the the immunoglobulin to the nuclear capsid, but if we start doing the spike protein antibodies and those that are the positive, which we think will be System with immunity, you can then monitor those children, which we're doing, to see if they develop COVID-19 despite having these antibodies, which if they had a spike protein antibody and they don't develop COVID-19, you know, during a, a prolonged period, so we're doing six months, you could be fairly confident that that antibody has offered them some sort of immunity. But that's why you need to follow them up. And it may be that we need to, we'll continue to follow them up beyond the six months, depending on what the landscape is with the research funding and things going forward.
0: There's been a new study uh, that's come out and it's suggesting that the virus could be a blood vessel virus, that it inflames blood vessels and that children have been able to stave off the virus largely because they tend to have healthier blood vessels than we do as adults. Do you have any thoughts on that new study?
1: In terms of the that paper in particular, so certainly there's something to do with ACE2 receptors in terms of um, how the virus affects individuals. Um, what's interesting in children is that younger children probably don't or do not express ACE2 receptors in the same way in the, certainly within the respiratory epithelium. So one of the theories, uh, which I I, I think has got something in, is that the younger children don't express ACE2 as much, which means they're less likely to um, certainly have serious disease. And also, do we talked about how very few children were having cough? You know, mm. And coming in with respiratory symptoms, it's quite rare, even with amongst the symptomatic children. Yes, is that's probably to do with ACE two expression within the respiratory tract. So I think we're not seeing the respiratory symptoms because we don't express ACE two to the same extent within the respiratory tract. I'm not, I'm not certain around ACE two within the vascular, but if, a similar argument may exist. So if they're not expressing the receptors for the virus to actually um, infect the cells, then they're not going to get such severe disease. So it's probably multifactorial in terms of. Young children are like little Olympic athletes, incredibly fit. Their blood vessels are healthy, and they can tolerate far more stress than physically than adults can. Um, and we see that when we're training our doctors about, you have to be very careful that a child can look look relatively well but be sick. Um, I also think there's something in, around those ACE2 receptors, which keep coming up in different studies in terms of being um, a, a mechanism by which the virus is infecting and affecting cells. So in that paper, it was looking at ACE2 and vascular and endothelial cells and, and its effects. But I think it also probably has an impact in terms of the respiratory side as well.
0: As you've been taking care of children within COVID wards, has anything jumped out at you?
1: Yes, that we don't have any. So the, 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 the children just aren't coming in, they're not sick. So we are seeing some of the children with this post, um, post-COVID you know, inflammatory Kawasaki type illness um, but when we're just not seeing severe acute illness um, in in children, it's just not. It, it's it's remarkable how little effect the illness has on um, on children, and that's again the kind of bit from before. We were very worried, very fearful about what was coming, um, and now actually the biggest harm to children is that they're being kept at home, and and the and the harm is coming through. The greatest harm to children is the education they're missing, the interaction with their health visitors, the interaction with the social services, um, and their ability to attend kind of routine paediatric hospital appointments. That's by far the biggest harm to children from this.
0: We're definitely seeing some concerning reports about children suffering mental health problems and distress from um, being locked away as they are. And as you say, there are concerning reports about rises in domestic violence. But going back for a moment to to the virus itself, you mentioned that you had seen children who had developed um, Kawasaki disease-like symptoms. What's that been like on the warden and how have children coped with that kind of disease?
1: Children are very resilient. They, they, they I don't think for them... In a strange way, they don't, it's no different for them than if they have Kawasaki. Kawasaki's is a horrible illness to have, you know, in terms of um, it's usually a miserable prolonged admission um, and then uncertainty about complications afterwards. So I, th- I think whether their Kawasaki's illness was related to a post, was triggered from COVID or triggered from something else, the, the outcome for the children is very, very similar. I, I don't think their actual patient journey changes all that much from that. So, um, it's, it's a horrible illness either way, whether it's COVID related or, or uh, they've just had it through some other route.
0: Once this project is finished, what would you like to study next in relation to children and, and COVID-19?
1: Schools. So, school. so I, I think this is a good template and a good model for how you could conduct this study on a larger scale within schools. I think we need to be doing that. We need to be going into schools and we need to quickly work out what the role of children is in the transmission of um, COVID-19 within schools. Because if we can show that perhaps it's the ACE2 um, receptors, perhaps it's some other factor. But if children are not sick, that's useful because we can reassure parents to say, you know, you can send your children to school and they they are going to be okay. And then also we need to look to see what their role is. So what's the attack rate from children to adults? And we, we don't know that that's that's unknown so um you know how safe are the teachers teaching in that class can they go and teach without um without fear there's there's a, a we've got to be careful as well in terms of there is a lack of evidence that the children have much of a role in the transmission of the virus for the lack of evidence isn't evidence of a lack of effect and what i mean by that is you, you kind of hit the nail on the head for me early on where children have been shielded essentially They're not going to the shops, they're not going to the schools, they're not mobilising. They can almost be seen as their own population, which is where this data is useful in terms of, um, I don't think children have seen as much coronavirus as adults. I think early infections were probably centred around major transport centres and were adults travelling between areas. Um, So until we actually see the, the infection spreading between children, we won't really know what their role is. We're all saying that children don't have a role. Actually, we just don't have any evidence that they have a role, but we haven't really, they haven't returned to normal activities yet. So until they're back at school, we won't really know for certain what's happening.